if we ever get into Second Peter, probably sometime in the next century, what, <laughs> what you're going to find in that book is Peter talks a lot about bringing things to your remembrance. He tries to remind you of things in that book that you should already know, but he's just kind of bringing them back to you. And that's kind of what I see Sunday night is all about, just kind of bringing things to remembrance, kind of reminding you of things that you probably already are aware of, but good to be reminded of every so often. That's what this lesson is about tonight. Turn to Mark chapter 4, if you would. Mark chapter 4. Uh, we're going to go through, we're going through a series when I'm teaching, filling in for the fellows. I, I'm going through the book of Mark, and we're in Mark chapter 4 this evening. Now, I'm not sure they teach this in school anymore, but when, back when I was in school, we learned all about Aesop's fables. And probably if you were in school back in the day, you remember those as well. Now, you may have forgotten many of the fables, uh, but those little stories just uh, were, were small stories, and then they taught a moral lesson. You remember there was a fable about the boy who cried wolf. And the moral of that story was that people who are liars are not going to be uh, rewarded, and even when they tell the truth, nobody's going to believe them. Uh, there was an Esau's fable, fable about the fox and the grapes. Uh, the moral of that story is that people often hate what they can't have. Now, my guess is you may not remember the stories, but my guess is you may remember the morals that were behind those stories. Those may have stuck with you even though the story may not because they were so clearly illustrated in those fables. Now, since there's nothing new under the sun, as Ecclesiastes tells us, and since everything that we find in the world somehow came back through God, God is the source of all that, what I realize is Aesop's fables are really a takeoff on the parables of Jesus Christ. That's really what Jesus Christ did. Just like Aesop's fables did later, they're stories that Jesus Christ would tell that illustrated a great truth. And the difference between Aesop's fables and our Lord's parables is that the truths presented in the Lord's parables are truths that are eternal. They last forever. Now, I'm sure you've spoken to or read the words of some skeptic who really doesn't believe Jesus Christ and doesn't want to follow. And they don't outright reject him. What they'll say instead is that he was a great teacher. They don't want to acknowledge him as the son of God, but they want to throw him some sort of bouquet. So they say he was a great moral teacher. Now, that's what he was. He was a great moral teacher. Uh, He obviously was more than that. But Jesus Christ was a masterful teacher. He was the best teacher that ever walked on this earth. He not only knew the message he wanted to give, he also knew the method that he wanted to use to make it happen. And so he would use different methods depending upon the people that he was teaching, the people that he was talking to. A good teacher is skilled in presenting whatever they're teaching in a way that the crowd will accept. They kind of read their audience and know the best way to present whatever it is that they want to present so that people will get what they're saying. Jesus Christ was always aware of the mental and spiritual focus of the people that he was teaching. And so when the Lord spoke to the rulers in the synagogue, he used parables very sparingly. Now, we're noticing in our study in Matthew, he's using some parables with them. That wasn't the rule. That was kind of outside the rule for the most part. When he was talking to the rulers, he would preach to them. He would skin them. (laughs) That's what he tried every time he talked to them. Sooner or later, he got after them because that's what they needed. Uh, When he talked to the people, it was a whole different deal. When he was speaking to the multitudes on the sea by the seaside, for example, which is what he's doing here, He teaches the multitude not by skinning them, not by preaching to them so much. Rather, he would teach by parables. He would take things they were familiar with and use those things to get the message across that he wanted them to hear. And so for many in the multitude, Jesus Christ used stories that would attract their attention. And by getting their attention, some would listen beyond the story and actually get to the moral of the story, hear the true point that Jesus Christ was making. Now, you remember as Jesus Christ talked to these multitudes, sometimes they would listen and sometimes they would be amused by the story and go no farther with it. Uh, it was those people that Jesus referred to as hearing but not perceiving. They'd hear the story. They'd take it all in. They just wouldn't perceive the message or would choose not to hear the message of the story. 
The parables that Jesus Christ told, like all of Scripture, were two-edged swords. Jesus Christ was always setting people up. He'd always give them a story, and they'd have to respond in some way. There always would have to be a response to it. And every one of Jesus Christ's parables, all of his teaching, had a bright side and a dark side. If you were willing to go past the parable and seek the meaning behind it, there'd be a great truth there that truly would be a lasting, eternal truth. But if there were those who had their hearts blinded, they'd hear the story, they'd get lost in the story, and miss the meaning of it altogether, just would never get the true meaning behind the story. And as, with, as if Jesus Christ was saying to those people, if you have no desire to see this, I'm going to present it to you in such a way that you'll never catch it. <laughs> I'm going to give it to you, already knowing your heart attitude toward it, because he's God, already knowing your heart attitude toward it, I'm going to give you something, and you're never going to get it, because you don't want to get it. You have no interest in getting it. Look at verses 33 and 34 of Mark chapter 4. This is who Jesus Christ is talking to. It says there, with many such parables spake he the word unto them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable spake he not unto them. And when they were alone, he expounded all things to his disciples. That is Jesus Christ's teaching style. He would give out a parable and let the multitude kind of decide what they wanted to do with it. And then the disciples, the followers, those people who really wanted to know what Jesus Christ was teaching, he would take them aside and give them the meaning of the parable afterwards. Uh, Listen to me, folks. There is an immense value to having a teachable spirit. Immense value to having a teachable spirit. That's what we want our children to have. That's what we as adults should have. There is immense value, and there is great loss for those who simply refuse to allow themselves to be teachable. Now, if you've been in church long enough, and especially if you've done any kind of teaching at all, you've been able to recognize both of them. (laughs) You know those folks who are teachable, and you know those folks who are not teachable. They simply have no interest in in gaining the message that the Bible wants to give them. And there's a great loss to that. But if a a person has a teachable spirit, if they truly desire to understand what the Lord is saying to them, the Lord is going to reveal truth to them. It's all about heart attitude. Ezekiel 14, it's all about the multitude of idols in our hearts. And if we choose to set up idols in our hearts, God responds according to the the multitude of those idols. And you'll find out things in the Bible that aren't even there, but you'll hear it because that idol filters that thing through and begins to give you a lesson that is nowhere in Scripture. But God says, if that's what you want, I'll give it to you. It's a two-edged sword, folks. It cuts both ways. (laughs) Now, over the years, I've heard people say to me, I just can't understand the Bible. You've probably had folks say that to you as well. I just can't understand the Bible. Now, I realize there are folks who have reading issues, or reading comprehension issues, and they have difficulty understanding whatever they might be reading. But if that's not the case, there are three reasons why I believe somebody has diff- would have difficulty understanding the Word of God. Number one, they don't know the Lord. It is impossible to understand that book without the Holy Spirit inside you. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who illuminates that truth to us. If there's no Holy Spirit, uh, you're going to have a difficult time understanding that book. That's number one. Number two, they're not willing to put in the necessary effort to study God's Word and find out what it says. Because we live in this uh, this easy society, this, you know, drive-through society, they want their truth quick and easy. That's why we have so many versions out there that water the Word of God down. They just don't want to go through all the work that it takes to really understand what God's Word says. And if that's the case... That person's going to have a difficult time understanding what the Word of God says. The third conclusion is this. The third reason for, is this. A person's spirit does not want to hear what the Lord has to say, and so they block his truth from entering. They just put up the gates. When God's truth get in, gets in and begins to get close to them and begins to touch on some nerve they have, they simply drop the gates and don't hear what God has to say. I believe otherwise, if a person has an open heart, 
Holy Spirit lives inside them, are teachable, and really are willing to hear whatever God has to say, you'll understand that book. It'll be very clear to you. You may not understand all of it. None of us understand all of it. But you'll get what God wants you to have if you simply open your heart to it and let whatever God is saying to you get in and apply to your heart and into your life. So Jesus Christ is speaking parables here. And what he's doing, uh, he realizes as he teaches these parables, some are going to get it and some aren't. It wasn't that the message wasn't there. It wasn't that the underlying message wasn't clear because, again, Jesus Christ, the masterful teacher, it's simply that some had the heart to receive it and some did not. And as a result, that's what happens. God is not trying to hide truth from anybody. God wants us to have the truth, but he wants us to have a desire to learn what he has for us to know. And God checks our motive and our heart attitude by the way he presents that truth to us. So we're in Mark chapter 4 tonight, and we have three parables in this chapter. We're only going to look at one of them tonight. Uh, we have outlines for this message. If you didn't get an outline, let Sandy you know. Anybody did not get an outline? You all got one? If not, you get, need one? Everybody has one? Sandy, David needs one right here. If you grab, uh, get an outline to him. I know on a Sunday night, Matt doesn't do outlines. So you weren't in the habit of grabbing them, so. Which, okay, Mark, Matt doesn't need to have outlines. I'm not saying that he should. Um. We're going to look at one of these uh, parables tonight, and it's a very familiar parable to you. As I say, this is reminding. This is uh, bringing things to your remembrance tonight, things you already know. So we're going to have our ears open. We're going to have our hearts open. We're going to have our eyes open, and we're going to receive this message God has for us tonight. We're going to get the moral of the story, why God told us this, and God will let us know exactly what the truth is. Now, what you're going to see in this parable is something very, very interesting. You're going to see the, the limitation to the one thing that you think is unlimited. You're going to see limitations to that one thing that we don't believe has any limitations. You're going to see the limitations of the Word of God. The Word of God actually has limitations to it. You may not believe that, but that's what this parable tells us. We're going to see that the Word of God is limited not because of what it says or not because of what it is. The Word of God is limited because of how people respond to it how men and women would respond to what the Word of God has to say. The book goes infinitely, but we can stop it anywhere along the way by how we respond to that book. So I want to look tonight at the parable of the sower. Uh, and I want to read for you, if I could, the first nine verses of this, para- of this chapter so we get the, the uh, context of the parable. So Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says, And he began to, again to teach by the seaside, and there was gathered unto him a great multitude, so that he entered into a ship, and sat in the sea, and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he taught them many things by parables, and said unto them in his doctrine, Hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow. And it came to pass, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground, where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up, and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And other fell on good ground, and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased, and brought forth some thirty, and some sixty, and some an hundred. And he said unto them, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Drop down to verse 14. Notice he says there, The sower soweth the word. Again, Jesus Christ gives a parable, and then gives the interpretation of the parable as well what do we see here we see that the sower is sowing the word of god now the sower in this parable is jesus christ he's the one sowing it and the seed is god's word and the first thing we take note of is that there's nothing wrong with the seed 
Get a hold of that. There's nothing at all wrong with the seed. That seed is perfect seed. The problem that is presented here in this parable is not because a seed is bad. Uh, you know the verse well, Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 11, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please. It shall prosper in the thing whereunto I send it. Whenever that word of God goes out, because it is God's word, it's always going to accomplish exactly what God wants it to accomplish. Paul tells him in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That book is dynamite tonight. It has power in it, enough to save any soul that comes to a Jesus Christ through it. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, as we mentioned a minute ago, says the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's the book you hold in your hand tonight, folks. That book is quick and powerful, powerful enough to save any soul that will come to it. So the problem is not the book. The problem is not the seed. In spite of man's attacks upon that book and in spite of many attempts we have had to water it down and change what God has said, that book still stands and that book still has as much power as it did the day God wrote it. The power is there. All of the power of God rests upon the Word of God. So if that's all true, we have to ask ourselves, how can God's Word be limited? How can a book that is infinite, how can a book with God's power in it, how can that book be limited? If that book has God's power, how can anything stop it from doing what God intended for it to do? Well, in spite of all the power in that book, it's limited because people refuse to see it as the Word of God. They refuse to see it, uh, uh, refuse to do, rather, what that book tells them to do. And as a result, for those folks, the power of that book never gets out. Uh, those folks who you witness to and read Scripture to them, and they refuse Jesus Christ as Savior, what they have done at that moment is put a block on the power of God. <laughs> That power is there to save their soul. And they say, no, I don't want any part of it. And they stop God's power from acting on them. And they don't even know they're doing it, but they're stopping what is the most active power they could possibly uh, envision or come come to terms with. And they refuse to allow that power to do in their life what God wants it to do. Only because they stop it by not hearing it. That book is a stick of dynamite, folks. Uh, I always like to think about that as the fuse. (laughs) You like that thing and boom, off it goes. That's what that book is, exactly what that book is. All of the power of God contained in it. But if you choose not to detonate it, the power does no good whatsoever. And so the bottom line again is there's nothing wrong with the seed. The problem exists in the response to the seed. And in this parable, God gives us four responses to the seed, four, four possible responses when the Word of God goes out. That means our response to the Word of God is included here. However you respond to the Word of God, you're going to find it in these four categories that Jesus Christ puts into this parable. That's what I want to focus on if I could. The first one is found in verse 4. Look at it if you would again. Uh, Mark 4, 4. And it came to pass, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. We'll call this the careless response. The careless response. The seed falls by the wayside, and the birds come and eat it. What do birds represent in God's Word? Look at verse 15. And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. Those birds represent Satan's demons. By the way, I don't like birds. <laughs> I think maybe that's why. I think birds are creepy. Somebody wanted to, my daughter talking about putting a bird bath out in the backyard. I said, man, I don't think I want to attract those things. <laughs> it's a little scary to me. That's why. I think they represent demons. <laughs> that's certainly what the word of God says here. So those demons come along and take that seed and remove that seed. 
That seed falls out, but it falls by the wayside. That person makes no response whatsoever to the message of God. These are lost people that we're talking about here in verse 4. Satan's work continues in their lives, and they don't respond to the message of God's word, and therefore uh, the seed has no effect on them. Now, I want you to see these folks had the opportunity to hear the message of the word. That word was given to them. They just chose not to respond to it. Here's what I believe, and I believe Scripture backs this up. I think every man or woman at some point in his or her life will have the opportunity to accept Jesus Christ as Savior if they have any desire at all to do that. And I don't care where they live. I don't care how remote they may live. I believe if a person wants to know more about what this life is all about, if they want to know more about what God is all about, I believe God then takes on the responsibility of getting somebody to that person to tell them about Jesus Christ. I believe this. I believe every missionary sent out Every missionary that goes to the field is going there because somewhere in that field, someone is saying, I wonder what this life is all about. And God's going to get somebody to tell you about that. And some missionary is set off, gets the, the burden, and goes out to that place and tells them about Jesus Christ. I've heard stories of, uh, of in Africa or these remote places where these folks who live, these natives who live there are walking along and there's a gospel track in the past. And there's been no human, uh, white, anybody around that place, no missionary anywhere around that place. But there's a gospel track laying there. How'd that happen? That happened because God heard the cry of somebody who said, I want to know more about you. And God says, okay, I'll drop a track on your path. <laughs> we'll make sure you find out what I'm all about. So I believe every person on earth, one of the great, you know, uh, protests of Christianity is, you know, what about the person who never heard? Anybody who wants to hear will hear. Amen. They'll hear. God will make sure of that. God wants everybody to be saved. He'll make sure they hear if they want to hear. It's up to the person if they want to know about it or not. And so here's the deal. God gives everybody a chance. No one misses the chance. What they do with that opportunity affects their eternal destiny. And what you have here in verse 4 is the careless hearer. Uh, he's the one who simply doesn't want to hear, doesn't care about it, and God and lets the seed fall to the ground. You want an example of that? Pilate is an example of that. We're not going to talk about Pilate tonight. I could do a whole message on Pilate. <laughs> Think about this. This man comes face to face with Jesus Christ. And he's the only one in the room, just the two of them, face to face. He meets Jesus Christ face to face, eyeball to eyeball, and Jesus Christ presents the word so clearly to him that he couldn't miss it. And Pilate lets the seed fall to the ground and the birds eat it. And he never gets it. And we have no indication that Pilate ever responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pilate was more interested in pleasing the people than he was in taking care of his own soul. And the best we can tell, uh, he is in hell today and has been there for over 2,000 years. And no more than a second of eternity has passed since he went to that place. <laughs> That's the eternal result of limiting God's salvation message and letting the birds carry the seed away. If there is somebody listening tonight and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, don't let the seed fall to the ground. You're going to have eternal consequences to that. God has given you the opportunity, even tonight, as you're listening, to hear the Word of God and hear about Jesus Christ and His salvation. Don't let it fall. Make sure you take advantage of the opportunity that God has given you. So, there's our first one, the careless hearer who simply lets the seed fall and does nothing with it. Look at verse 5 now. And some fell on the stony ground, where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. We'll call this the temporary response. The temporary response. Here's a person who, for all appearances, seems to have received the message of the word. The seed is spread. 
The plant comes up. It seems to be growing. And then the sun comes out. <laughs> now, we have tough times when the heat of the day is, is at its hottest. And with that heat, we find out that that plant was there, but it had no root. And pretty soon the plant dies. This represents that group of people who hear the word of God. And for a while, they play church. They play church. They're involved in the activities. They say the right things. They may quote scripture. They may involve themselves in the Bible studies. From all appearances, they seem to be believers who are committed to doing God's work and hearing from him. But sooner or later, as happens in everybody's life, the tough times come. The persecution comes or the affliction comes or the temptation comes. And because there is no root to that person's faith, they are soon attracted to other things. Other things catch their attention and they aren't seen anymore. The longer you do are involved in a church work like this, the more you see that happen. I've been a pastor of this church now for almost 11 years. I've seen people come and go over the years. And some have left for good reasons. I understand that. I wouldn't judge that whatsoever. But I wonder about those who every so often leave and we never hear from them or see them again. When things didn't go their way, when the affliction came, when things got tough, they weren't interested in serving Jesus Christ anymore. And again, I am no judge. I'm not putting myself in that position. But it does raise some questions about their root structure. <laughs> it does raise some questions about how deeply they were into the whole thing to begin with. I've confessed to you many times I'm not a farmer. I have no desire to be a farmer. But I do know this. I do know the healthy plants are able to endure scorching sun and the droughts because their roots go deep and the roots are strong. That's why that plant continues. It is the same way with a child of God. If they're rooted in the right place, if they strengthen their roots by drawing closer to him and by digging into his word, then no persecution or affliction that comes will permanently affect them. It might bother them for a minute and they may wilt a bit, <laughs> but it's not going to kill them. It's not going to destroy them. And if there is a professing Christian, professing Christian, who doesn't stand when the hard times come, there is a good chance that their roots were never truly in the Lord to begin with. Now, again, we are not the judges for that, I and mean, we not, are not to be. I'm simply saying that's the possibility. There's a fellow over there in Acts chapter 8 by the name of Simon the Sorcerer. He's a good example of this temporary response. You remember Simon hooked up with the disciples, professed Jesus Christ because he wanted to do miracles like they were doing. And when Peter rebuked him for that, uh, he had wrong motives, Peter told him. Simon backed off and was never heard from again. And in fact, history tells us that Simon was probably the one who was one of the prime forces behind the development of the system of Gnosticism, which is a, a philosophy totally opposed to Christianity and to Jesus Christ. Folks, what we need to see is that people can look like Christians and act like Christians and talk like Christians and not be Christians. <laughs> We need to be very careful not to be taken in by that. Be very careful. And time will show those who truly know the Lord, especially when the heat kicks in, and those who don't know the Lord. All right, so that's the second one. That is our temporary response to the gospel, temporary response to the word of God. Here's the third one in verse 7. Look at verse 7, if you would. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. We'll call this the worldly response. The worldly response. The seed is sown, but it falls among thorns, and the thorns choke out the plant. Look down at verse 19, if you would. Jesus Christ gives the interpretation of this. Uh, verse 18. And these are they which are sown among the thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things, entering in, choke the word, and it becometh 
unfruitful. What are these thorns? The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the lust of other things. And that plant is planted and it begins to take root and it begins to grow. And then these things come along and choke out that plant after it's begun to grow. Now, this is the first group that Jesus Christ has mentioned who are actually, who actually have true faith. How do I know that? Because again, look at the end of verse 19. It becometh unfruitful. So they were bearing fruit. They just became unfruitful. They stopped bearing fruit at some point. Folks, true fruit bearing can only happen with legitimate faith. There can't be true fruit bearing if the faith is not real. And notice also, they were bearing fruit for a while, uh, but the, the fruit bearing stopped at one point in time. So here's a category now that you could fit into, and I could fit into, this worldly response. This could be a possibility for us. This could be the place where we fall, perhaps. If you know Jesus Christ as Savior, you could not be a part of the first two groups. Those folks aren't saved. But this third group, this group is a group of truly saved people who lose their effectiveness for Jesus Christ. And there are three things identified there that can cause us to lose our effectiveness. Cares, riches, and lusts. Cares, riches, and lust. I love the Word of God. It takes in every category. You couldn't find anything else that wouldn't fit into those three. <laughs> Cares, riches, and lust. Satan can take those anxieties, those worries about life and things going on in this life and use those things to reduce your effectiveness for Jesus Christ. He can take our attention on financial gain. He can take the fact that prices are at all-time high and gas is $5 a gallon. He can take all those things and make those things more important to you than Jesus Christ. I foresee the day, if it stays like this, where people are going to begin to make excuses for not coming to church because they can't afford to drive here. You watch it. It's going to happen. It's going to, I was just talking to Sandy about that at lunch today. Hasn't happened yet, and hopefully it won't happen here, but I can guarantee you some folks are going to say, you know what, it just costs too much to drive to church. That's a thorn. <laughs> That's a thorn. They'll drive anywhere else. I bet they drive to work if they have to, but they won't drive here or wherever. So uh, riches, deceitfulness of riches is another one. That's another thorn that might keep somebody from hearing uh, the Word of God, or at least being, being fruitful in the Word of God. And then finally, the lust of the flesh. He identifies those in First John, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And those things can, things can destroy our testimony and reduce or eliminate our fruit bearing. The power of the Word of God is limited by my willingness to become involved in or be distracted by other things. We talked about this man, Demas, uh, last time we were in the book of Mark. And you remember Demas. In in Philemon, uh, verse 24, Paul calls Demas a fellow laborer. He was a man who worked side by side with the apostle Paul. I can't think of anything better outside of working side by side with Jesus Christ. He worked side by side with the greatest Christian, the greatest apostle who ever lived. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, Paul says, Demoth hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. <laughs> what happened to Demas? Uh, he ended his ministry because the things of the world became more important to him than the things of the Lord. And the lust of this world filled his vision, and he lost his vision of Jesus Christ, and as a result, he stopped in his fruit bearing. Now, believer, listen to me. Nobody is immune from that. You may have been saved a long time. You may be a stalwart in the church. You may be, be one of the pillars of the church. It can happen to you. It can happen to me. It can happen to anybody. Uh, because you see, folks, any Christian, the strongest Christian, can be distracted and have their vision chained, changed by the right temptation. And by the way, Satan knows exactly what's going to tempt you. 
He knows you better than you know yourself. <laughs> he knows exactly what to put in your path that's going to change your vision and get you off track in some way. I attended church with a fellow years ago. He was called to pastor at a church elsewhere, was doing a phenomenal work for Jesus Christ. That fellow was loaded with ability and personality and truly seemed sold out for God, and I think he was. I found out sometimes later that he was in prison for embezzling money from the church. And that happened after he had an affair with a woman in the church. <laughs> this was the last person I ever thought would be a sermon illustration for this listener here, this, this one we're talking about right here. But the deceitfulness of riches and the lust of the flesh got to him, and he fell. Now, since then, he's gotten himself right. He's serving God again. Praise God for that. What that says to me is it can happen to anybody. <laughs> can happen to anybody. Nobody is immune from this. It can happen to you. It can happen to me. But look, God gives us a way to keep it from happening. And praise God, it's found in the last hearer we want to look at. Look at verse 8. Here's the fourth hearer. And other fell on good ground and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased and brought forth some 30 and some 60 and some 100. Here's our sincere response. The sincere response. The seed falls on good ground. What is good ground? Uh, verse 20 tells me, look at it, uh, drop down to verse 20. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it. You see it? Not just hearing the word of God in verse 20, but also receiving the word of God. There's a difference. There's a difference. People can sit in church on a Sunday morning and hear the word of God, and it all just bounces off of them. <laughs> there are those also who sit in church and not only hear the word of God, but receive it. Hold your hand there and mark, if you would. Go back to the book of Matthew, chapter 13. This is Matthew's account of this same parable. And he gives us insight also into what this good ground is all about. Look at Matthew, chapter 13, and look at verse 23. Matthew, chapter 13, and verse 23. It says, But he that receives seed into the, into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it. So now we have hearing, receiving, and understanding. What's that mean? That means I hear what the Word of God has to say. I take it in, and then I put the work in necessary to understand what God's trying to tell me. Sometimes that's very easy. Sometimes it's not so easy. God has all kinds of ways of doing that. But what that tells me is that person who has good ground is that one who hears the Word of God and receives the Word of God and then understands the Word of God. They work on understanding exactly what it is God's saying to them. Now, again, I just mentioned to you, I'm not a farmer. However, our daughter was home this last uh, week, and she's gotten into plants. She's a, just a plant fanatic all of a sudden. And so she decided, I need to be into plants too. So she, she because, you know, yeah, we have to share these miseries. So, uh, so she talked me into doing a garden. I planted nine plants. Okay, so it's not really much of a garden, but it's nine. That, that, that's good enough for me. So... These nine plants, by the way, our groundhogs are so excited. The neighborhood groundhogs are, are just ecstatic over the fact that I planted this garden. Now, the first thing we had to do before we ever planted this garden is prepare the soil. And that's a part of the job. That, that's probably why I don't have a garden. One of the reasons I don't have a garden, I hate doing that. It takes the most work. It's the longest kind of job. You've got to break all that up. I have lousy dirt at my house, so it's like, you know, I've got to bust this up and then put all kinds of stuff in it to make the dirt good. I just don't like doing any of that. <laughs> but, of course, you know, your kids talking all kinds of stuff. But I do know this. I know if the soil is not prepared, nothing's going to grow. It's got to be prepared first if the seed is going to grow. Folks, when the word of God is spread, there's going to be no fruit unless the soil of our hearts is prepared for it. Your heart has got to be ready for it. 
And I believe that is the only reason, of the only, this, why this is the only hearer who does anything consistent for Jesus Christ, is because the heart of this hearer had been prepared before the seed of God's word came. You know, you need to come to church on Sunday morning and Sunday evening and Thursday night, and when you open your Bible through the week, you need to open that book. But before you ever open that book, you need to say, Lord, prepare my heart for what you have for me. Don't walk in here or don't open that book up in the morning or evening and just dive into it before you say, Lord, prepare my heart. You're going to miss what he has for you. The first thing you need is for the Holy Spirit to come along and throw down into that dirt, whatever he needs to throw down into it, so you can receive what God has for you. We can't read that book devotionally and expect to see fruit from it. I know folks who use the daily bread, and that's a wonderful little devotional. That is not Bible study, folks, and that's not enough. It's not enough. You need to be doing Bible study on your own and Bible reading on your own and prepare your heart for it. It's not enough just to hear the Word of God. You've got to receive the Word of God. Let that Word go down inside you. Memorize it and study it and contemplate it. Open God's Word. Make sure your heart is honest. Make sure your heart is right. Make sure your motive is right. Make sure that what you profess on the outside is what you believe on the inside. And then get into the Word of God. One of the things I worry about with churches in general, our church always, I worry about us being ordinary and routine. I worry about any church that's been around longer begins to become just a routine that we go through. We show up, we go through it, we come back the next day, we just keep going through it. Our Christianity, whether in church or outside of church, should never become routine, should never become ordinary. We strive as a staff, John and I and Matt strive as a staff to talk about ways to open things up and keep things fresh. I think we need to do that as a church. I think as individual believers, we need to put ourselves into places where we can see God work in new ways. Don't get stuck doing the same old thing. Try something new. Push yourself out a little bit. Challenge yourself. Make yourself uncomfortable. That's why we have this marketplace ministry. That's why we have visitation. I know those uncomfortable ministries, folks. I get it. They're designed to be uncomfortable. We need to be uncomfortable. Because if we're not uncomfortable, it becomes routine, it becomes ordinary. And so what we need to do is do some scary things, do some threatening things. Again, do some things that make us uncomfortable. And then, folks, listen to me, be patient. Learn to wait on the Lord. I know it drives some of you nuts, doesn't it? <laughs> drives me nuts. Learn to wait on Him. Let God do what He wants to do when He wants to do it. And don't put your schedule on Him. He won't listen to you anyway, but it's just going to frustrate you. I've heard this many times. I'm sure you have as well, but I think it's good. The only ability God needs is availability. And that's good. I think that's very true. That may be trite and old, but it's the truth. God doesn't need a lot of ability. He just needs you to be available. And if you'll be available, you'll be amazed at what God will do through you. Now, if you're like me, you hear all that, hear what this fourth hearer is all about, and you say to yourself, man, that sounds like work. When my daughter said, we're going to plant a garden, I said to myself, man, that sounds like work. In fact, I think it's told her, ah, I don't want to do all that work. <laughs> it is work. It is work. The Word of God is work. Being a, a careful hearer is work. Uh, because you see, what God calls it is preparing the soil. <laughs> preparing the soil. And sometimes that is hard work. But I want to tell you something. I'm hoping with my garden there's going to be a payoff. I guarantee you, if you prepare the ground of your heart, there's going to be a payoff. You're not going to do that work in vain. I guarantee you, not because I say it, because that's what the Word of God says. It'll be, there'll be a payoff. And the result, the payoff is what? Well, he tells us here, the result, the payoff is bearing fruit. Bearing fruit. And he tells us that there's even various kinds of fruit to bear. Look at verse 8 again. 
It says other fell on good ground and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased and brought forth some 30, some 60, some 100. So there's three categories, three levels of believers in terms of the kind of fruit they're going to bear. There's 30s and there's 60s and there's 100s. The more you work the soil, the more fruit you bear. That's just how it works. And the more fruit you bear, listen to me, the more fruit you bear, the more pleasure you bring to your Savior. And that's the goal, folks. That's the true goal. So here's these three levels of fruit bearers. And there's demonstrated really in the lives of our Lord's disciples. Are actually three levels of fruit bearing found in, our, in, in the Lord's disciples. First of all, you've got the 12. Those are the 30 group. They're productive, but not at full potential. How do I know that? I know that because when Jesus Christ arose from the dead, there were certain disciples who didn't believe he even rose. Uh, they weren't producing like they could have. They had some skepticism. They had some doubt. And they were weighed down also by Judas. <laughs> so they were productive. They definitely were productive, but not at full potential. That is the group most Christians fall into. If I was going to guess, I guess 85 to 90% of Christians fall into that 30 group. They're doing something. They're doing some work. Not at full potential. Not all they could do, but they're doing some at least. And so that is probably where most of us fall in. At least many people fall into it as far as believers. Uh, they see fruit, but just the minimum. Then you've got the next group, the 60 group. With the disciples, I believe that is Peter, James, and John. Uh, Jesus would always separate those three fellows out, and they were always around when Jesus Christ was doing certain things. They were more productive as the disciples. They were closer to the Lord. They were willing to go through more, uh, endure more. And as a result, uh, they suffered more than the other 12 did, but they also produced more fruit than the others did. So that's the, the, the 60 group. And then there's a 100 group. Who falls into the hundred group? I would say the Apostle John does. That's the disciple who, disciple who rested on Jesus' breast. That's the disciple who was able to hear the heartbeat of God. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Can you imagine hearing the heartbeat of God? John laid on his breast and heard that heartbeat, and that was the heartbeat of God he listened to. That disciple was most in communion with the Lord. That's the one who with a clear conscience served God and went clear through the entire trial of the cross itself with him. When all forsook him, he might have taken off, but he came back because he was at the foot of the cross when Jesus Christ was dying, stood there with Jesus' mother. He was willing to bear the reproach of knowing the Lord. He was willing to stand for Jesus Christ in spite of the attacks of the crazed mob. He was willing to do that, and what he saw is the full fruit of his ministry. He was the one who had the glories of heaven revealed to him through the book of Revelation. Why did God choose him? Because he was the one who knew God's heart. He was the one who had gone through more than any other one had. And so God said, you know what? I'm going to give you some special revelation. Nobody else is going to see this but you. And then you report on what you see. He's in the hundred group. Now, folks, I want to say something to you. Any believer can fall into that group. It's not an exclusive group. You're not excluded because of certain things. Any believer can fall into it. The only thing that stops us from being a part of that group is our unwillingness to pay the price. I'm going to have you turn, if you would, to Psalm. Mark a... Mark, uh, Mark, Mark, yeah, uh, put a marker in Mark and go to Psalms and go to Psalm 126. Again, familiar verses, I'm sure, bringing things to your remembrance tonight. 126, uh, verses 5 and 6. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth. Bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Folks, what do you need to get a plant to grow? Well, you better water it. What's that verse say? How do you water these plants? By tears. The, verse, the first verse says it, and the second verse says it. 
sowing in tears, he that goeth forth weeping. You see how you water that seed, folks? You water that seed with tears. And God says, if you're willing to do it, I'm going to put you through some stuff. And it's going to probably bring tears to your eyes. And you may weep a while. But in that weeping, look at what it says. Bearing precious seed, there we are, shall doubtless, 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 God says, doubtless, come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. If I allow the word of God to take root in my life, if I allow it to clean me up and purge me from all the things that would keep me from serving God, then I'm going to be ready to spread that seed to others. But I'll only be in that fruitful place if I'm willing to go in brokenness, if I'm willing to be burdened for the loss. I can't be fruitful if I'm not willing to extend myself. I can't be fruitful if I'm not willing to change my plans and respond to opportunities, even if they are difficult opportunities, even if they take me out of what I'm comfortable with. And the promise is this. If I'll go with that attitude, I will doubtless come again with rejoicing and I'm going to have fruit with me to show for my sacrifice that I've made for Jesus Christ. So, back to Mark 4. Bringing things to your remembrance tonight. What group are you in? What group are you in? If you're listening tonight, as I said a minute ago, and you're in one of those first two groups, you need salvation tonight. You need to be born again. Now, believer, where are you tonight? Take assessment just in your own heart. Have I been distracted? Have I allowed other things to pull me away from the work that God has called me to? And as a result, is my fruit bearing being harmed by that? Am I bearing less than I could if I get my eyes focused back where it needs to be? If that's the case, folks, there is need for repentance. There's a need to turn away from those things and turn back to the Lord and get your full vision on him again. I know you know this. But I want to say it to you. There is no eternal value in anything of the world. No eternal value. You can put your focus there from now until you die and have nothing at all to show for it after you go. So you see, we need to be bearing fruit. How do we bear fruit? We show others the way of the cross. And we do it by sacrifice. We can be the 30, we can be the 60, or we can be 100, depending, about how, depending on how willing we are to pay the price to produce all that we can produce. As we close, turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And I want you to look at verse, verse 2, if you would. John 15, 2. It says, Every branch in me, that's you and I, that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now, and then he says, now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Fruit bearing comes by purging. I know when you have plants, you're supposed to snip off the little buds and so forth, little leaders and all those, so they can keep all the energy going to the fruit itself. God does that with you and I as well. Sometimes he has to cut things off to make sure you stay focused on fruit bearing. Sometimes he has to purge you in a way, and that purging comes as you get into the word of God. That purging comes as I put myself into situations that only God can get me out of. I may say, I don't want to give up some stuff. I don't want to do that. I just will simply choose to not bear fruit. Before you go, let me show you verse 16, John 15, 16. You've not chosen me, Jesus Christ says. Not your choice. I've chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bear forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. Jesus Christ says, believer, if you've trusted me as Savior, it's not your choice to bear fruit or not. You've been ordained to do it. You've been called to do it. You've been, had God's hands laid upon you, and God says you are saved to bear fruit. That's why I've left you here. So the challenge is this. What are we willing to do? 
We've been ordained to do it. God's called us to do it. Are we willing to do what God has called us to do and sacrifice what we must sacrifice in order to bear fruit, receive the word of God, allow it to work in us, and bear fruit as a result? Stand as you would.